Welcome everyone. So tonight we're starting a different topic. We have been talking about ethical conduct or living in harmony in terms of our external relationships. But we're moving on to another one of the ten paramis, these ten perfections of the heart, these qualities. Each one of them is a path in and of itself. So, you know, if we really develop our understanding of renunciation, what that looks like, we'll understand everything we need to understand about living a good life, a loving and wise life. And with something like renunciation, we have to go beyond a lot of the baggage that we have. When we hear that word, you know, we tend to immediately think, oh, it's all about I have to give up, having is bad, giving up is good triggers a lot of that primitive spiritual th uh, thinking. So it's nice to use the word, the joy of letting go. That letting go is something, not only is that, that it's natural to let go, but that it uh, brings us into a deeper alignment. It's peaceful to let go. Just like it's uh, a burden to be complicated. It's a burden, <clears throat> you know, it's a burden to live our life thinking that there's a lot that we need to have or a lot that we need to get rid of. I mean, a lot of us, one of the nice things now, I'm in my early 50s, and there's something about getting beyond the 40s where a lot of the things I thought I had to do or had to become, now, you know, now that I'm 51, it's like, well, I probably won't get to that, <laughs> not this lifetime. And uh, so it's like naturally as we get older, we can, we can begin to simplify our minds at least in terms of all the things we think we need to do or become. And we can have a simpler idea like, well, maybe survival is enough, you know, just <laughs> not making a, big, a bigger mess or a big mess instead of having to you know, some huge accomplishment. And we can really develop this to the nth degree. In a way, renunciation stands for the whole path. There's this great line from Ajahn Chah, a well-known Buddhist Thai monk. Um, he says, if you let go of a little, you get a little peace. If you let go of a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, your problems are over. So it's so much of the path is I'm beginning to appreciate letting go and, and refining our understanding what do we actually need to let go of? Because this is confusing. The Buddha said, Whoso has turned to renunciation, turned to non-attachment of the mind, is filled with an all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after life. It feels so appropriate for us to thirst after life, you know, to get attached or identified with the world of experience, with the world of my experience. We don't even question it. I like this, I don't like that, I want this, I don't want that. So like in the meditation instructions tonight, we're, we're um, activating a real paradigm shift. 
real revolution in the mind from what we would call a worldly mind the mind of I want this I want to become this I don't want that I don't want to become that that's who it you know if we're thinking about our worldly situation our life situation the problems that I have the problems that I've avoided so when we're thinking on that level we're thinking about the world and it's complicated so even if we have relatively good thoughts like I'm so, so glad I didn't make that mistake or I'm so glad this is happening to me even that is complicated even that comes with weight so when we practice meditation one of the things we're doing is we're practicing a renunciation like learning to let the sensations be enough and then when thoughts arise instead of getting identified with the content of the thought the complications we see thoughts as just thoughts so in a way it doesn't matter what the particular content is it's just a thought it's just an emotion just think about how much more simple that way of being is on the on the one hand the worldly side of the equation every thought every emotion every sight every sound comes packed with meaning so if I see something it's not just the scene it's all that arises in the scene all that arises in what I hear what I think what I smell and taste what I touch so in a way the moment-to-moment -moment sensory experience is a jumping off point into this great ocean of conditioning so if I see somebody or something it triggers a lot of my conditioning like the memory I have of this particular visual form if I have a thought that thought is a jumping off to all the other related thoughts you know this process of association so every single sense experience thought sound smell touch taste whatever else I'm missing there is a is just a, leads to endless proliferation complications one thing leading onward to another to another to another but there's this other option which is to not be um, confused by the attachment by the desire that comes up in relationship to what we see and what we think what we hear so when I see something can't help with that the memory is going to get triggered but I can make a choice what I'm going to do with that memory with the desire with the aversion how I'm going to relate to that is it going to be the cause for jumping off or is can it be just sort of its own thing desire is just desire aversion is just aversion there's a beautiful poem over 500 years old from Kabir this great Indian saint really wasn't part of any religious tradition or a number of religious traditions sort of claim him Sufi, Sufism and Hinduism Sikhism but he didn't really want to be caught in any one of the established religions back when he was alive he has this one poem friend please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven 
So I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover that I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. And that's really our practice. What's the one thing that we keep holding on to? And it's confusing. We shouldn't assume we actually understand this. And it's something that we need to understand moment by moment. So even if we get it in one moment, like we know what needs to be let go of, doesn't mean we'll know it in the next moment. And there are many teachings in Buddhism about this particular point. What do we need to let go of? Because, you know, there's a basic problem in spirituality, this um, confusion of asceticism, where we think that, you know, we know enough that we're a human being and that life is complicated to us and that all of those complications are stressful. They create weight. And so it's relatively easy for us to think, just, I'm done with it. I'm done with the kids. No more kids, you know. I'm done with the job. I'm done with relationships. I mean, think about how many times we've said this. I'm done with food. I don't want to deal with food anymore, you know. I'm done with exercise. I'm done. Onward and onward, we've had this sort of recognition that we're suffering. But we sort of jump to a conclusion that the reason I'm suffering is because of the world. And if only I could get rid of the world, you know, then I wouldn't suffer. And the asceticism really comes out of this tradition. And, you know, there's some wisdom, you know, being really having a lot of desires and a lot of responsibilities and a lot of duties. It's hard to manage our lives if that's the case. But to somehow think that as a living being, we can get rid of the world <laughs> is real delusion. You know, and the Buddha, because he followed the teachings of the wise people in his day, he practiced a lot of asceticism to the nth degree, really. There's one talk he gave later, once he became a teacher, about how far he took the ascetic practices. And he claimed that as far as anybody's gone with the ascetic practices, I went that far. And I found it doesn't lead anywhere, ultimately. He talks about how he put his finger here, and the only thing he could feel is his spine. There was nothing between the skin and the spine. You know, I don't know if that's true, but there, you might have seen there, these pictures of a very gaunt, emaciated Buddha um, that you see sometimes in the Buddhist tradition. So he, he understood the limitations of that, and there was a real turning point in his practice. Here's one section from that teachings where he let go of asceticism. He said to the, his students, there are two extremes which should not be followed, practitioners, by someone who has gone forth on this path. Devotion to pursuing sense pleasure, which is low, vulgar, worldly, ignoble, and produces no useful result, and devotion to self-denial, which is painful, ignoble, and produces no useful result. Avoiding these extremes, practitioners, the middle way that the Tathagata has awakened to gives vision and insight, knowledge, 
and leads to peace, profound understanding, full realization, and to nibbana or nirvana. So understanding the joy of renunciation is really understanding this middle ground between pursuing a life of sense experience, thinking that happiness will come if I can only get the right collection of sense experiences. But you know, we've had a lot of pleasant sense experiences, but they always end. Like we've hung around with really nice people sometimes, and it was really nice being with those nice people in that nice situation. But then it ends, you know, it, it, we, and if we try to maintain it forever, that trying to maintain it forever itself is a lot of suffering trying to make something last longer than it can last. So we've had really nice experiences. Most of us have had nice experiences, sense experiences. But we understand that they're fragile. They come and then they go. So producing or living a life devoted to that is limited. Rejecting sense experience is also limited. I mean, where does that lead? Sort of being afraid of pleasant sense experiences. So we don't want to be devoted, like that's what it's all about, but we don't want to be afraid. Like when nice sense experiences arise, we receive them. When there's good food to eat, we eat it. When we're around pleasant people, we appreciate we're around pleasant people. When the body doesn't have painful sensations, we appreciate that. But when there are painful sensations in the body, Denying that and longing for pleasant sensations is just adding stress on top of what is already unpleasant. And this happens over and over again. And it really points us in the direction of what the Buddha means by renunciation. There's this famous teaching um, that involves a layperson, which is unusual. In the Buddhist tradition, you know, usually it involves monks and nuns. But there's this wise layperson, his name is Chitta, and uh, at the time of the Buddha, he would often go where the monks were and uh, visit them after their main meal late in the morning because they'd often talk about practice. And so he'd go and listen to what they had to say and discuss practice with them. And one day he noticed some senior monks talking about practice and they were debating this issue about what is the problem? You know, where does the problem of suffering arise from? How does it come to be? Is it the fact that we're sensitive creatures that we see and hear and touch and think? And if somehow if we, if we could be not sensitive, we wouldn't suffer? Or is it because there are pleasant objects out there or unpleasant objects out there? Is that the problem? So if we could somehow remove ourselves from pleasant and unpleasant objects, then we'd be free from suffering. So they were having this debate. Chitta arrives and he asks them what they've been talking about and they explain. And he offers this teaching to them, which is a little bit bold of him. He says, well, let me offer this simile to you. If you think about two ox yoked together or there's that wooden collar, you know how the, they have the big buffalo, water buffalo or oxen tied together. So if you imagine that, you have a black one on one side, a white one on the other, would, does it make sense to say that the black is a fetter to the white or the white is a fetter to the black? That one is a burden to the other? And the uh, senior monks go, no, that doesn't make sense to say one is a burden to the other. 
And the chitta, the lay person says, just so. It's not that one is a fetter to the other. It's the problem is the collar. That's what binds them. So it's not the sensitivity. It's not the sensitivity of the eye that's the problem. And it's not the pleasant object that we see with the eye that's the problem, or the unpleasant object. The problem is what rises in conjunction with sensitivity and sense object. And this is really important. It's really placing the cause of suffering not out in the world, but in the mind itself. And this would save us from a lot of suffering if we really understood this in our bones. Because don't we almost always blame the world? We, when we're suffering, when we feel stress, when we feel burden, we either blame ourselves, like in the sense of not, not so much in the right sense, the self like, you know, being sensitive, having seen that, having thought that, or we blame the object itself out there in the world. You know, if only he or she weren't here in my life, if only I didn't have to do this. And what the Buddha is pointing to is, well, what's ar what arises in conjunction? When I think this, when I see that, when I hear this, something arises that, in a sense, is extra. That's what we abandon, the passion or the craving or the attachment, identification. This is really our path. One of the things that we, um, the more we practice, the more we begin to notice the force of craving, this um, way that the mind relates. So it's not that we're sensitive and it's not what we're seeing, it's how we relate to that interaction, being a sensitive creature who has experience. We, we relate with attachment. And it's this amazing force in the heart. And it actually isn't about any one thing. We might think, oh, I want that car, or I want that job, or I want that relationship, or I want this body, or I want health. But actually, the force of craving is like, a, you know, it's almost like a, a vortex of energy. But we, we kind of confine it to an object. You know, we kind of try to trap it. Oh, I want this. The key is to be to be willing to feel that energy in the heart, in the mind. To feel craving free of the object, free of the person who wants the object. Or, you know, aversion is just the flip side of craving. Free from the object, free from the person who doesn't want the object. What is aversion? What is that force in and of itself? The Buddha said something like, desire pulls so hard, it's surprising to find that it is empty. <clears throat> and what he means by empty, he doesn't mean that it isn't there, it isn't something that we feel, it is something that's felt, but it doesn't belong to anybody. And this is something that we can see in our practice. So we're sitting in meditation, and uh, you know, pain arises in the body, let's say or memory arises in the mind. 
and let's say it's an attractive memory that makes us long for something. Well, we can, with practice, we can notice the image that we long for, but we can, in a sense, step back and notice the longing itself or notice the aversion itself. So instead of <clears throat> focusing on the object, the twisting or burning or the aching, the actual sensations, we can look at the mind and the craving or the aversion in the mind. It's just like a, a natural force. When we take it personally, <clears throat> in a way we're constricting it and it becomes burning. It's like we're sort of <clears throat> saying, this is me. I need this. See, once we turn it into me, then we're going to turn it into uh, like something I need to get or something I need to get rid of. We kind of constrain it, tie it down in a way that just leads to unskillful actions and thoughts. So we, the, the way of practice is to begin to abandon all of that content that goes with these what are usually afflictive emotions. You know, can we, <clears throat> in a world, can we get to know this world of emotion, of craving, aversion, free from the thought of me and the thought of what we do or don't want? Like to actually feel it. It's like a whole other universe, basically. Because almost always when we're awake, when we're aware of emotion, it's tied up in the story, what we want, what we don't want, what's good for the world, what's bad for the world. Like what's emotion independent or free from the stories that correspond to the emotion? What's sadness, what's desire, craving, wanting, fearing? What is all of that without the story, the objects, the person? It's just this natural flow of energy is what it is. But when it's in the form of a story, then we want to control something that can actually be controlled. It really has its own life. Its whole point, you know, really is just to move. That's what emotion does. That's, even the word itself means movement. If you want a, a really nice book to go along with these talks on the ten paramis that I started earlier in the spring and I'll probably be doing at least through the spring, so probably a year covering these ten qualities. It's a book by Sylvia Burstein, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness. So here's the beginning of this chapter on renunciation, the third of these ten paramis. If I want to free myself from endless cycles of struggling with temptation, which the Buddha named in the Second Noble Truth as the root cause of suffering, I need to rediscover, I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle is greater than the pain of the desire. <clears throat> this is a very deep teaching. So here's what happens, I think, for all of us. We're living our life and we have sense experience. We see something, think something, hear something, smell something, touch something. And that contact, the sensitivity of the, you know, the 
mind or the five physical senses meets some experience, something's being known, and that something being known triggers, is a cause for some emotion to arise, desiring, craving, let's say. And that craving, as it arises within my ordinary kind of frame of mind, frame of reference, self and other, this and that, the sort of dualistic notions that we live with most of the time, then, then it hurts because it's being constrained. It's just a natural force, like I mentioned. But because it's arising with the particular view that I have right now of me and the world and what I want and what I don't want, the energies, in a sense, there's a constriction or a friction. And so the desiring, the craving hurts. And because it hurts, we want to get rid of the hurt, right? Like when we really want something, it hurts, doesn't it? The wanting something really hurts. And then we really want it because we want that hurt to go away, right? And so when we actually get what we want, don't we mom momentarily experience a relief from the hurt of wanting? You really want this person to love you. You really want this person to love you. You really want this person to love you. Finally, he or she says, I love you. You know? And that ache goes away until the next thought, you know, does she really love me? <laughs> or do I love her? You know? But in a moment, for only a moment usually, there's a relief. It goes away. But because we're going to have another sense experience and that sense experience is going to trigger craving or aversion all over again, it won't last long. And then it's always in this constricted form, so it hurts. And we always feel like, if only I can gratify the desire to get rid of what I don't like or get what I like, I'll get some relief. And it's true, we do get some relief. This is why it's so confusing. But the relief is temporary. And we're right back in that mess again. And over and over and over again. So, this is Sylvia's wish for herself. If I want to be free, if I want to free myself from the endless cycles of struggling with temptation, which the Buddha names as the cause, the second noble truth, the cause, the root cause of suffering, I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle is greater than the pain of the desire. So this is this profound choice we have moment by moment. We can either choose to feel the force of desire, the force of craving or aversion in the heart in each moment, or we can struggle to extinguish it by getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want, but then be faced with that in the next moment, getting rid of what we don't want, getting what we want, and getting a little relief, and then again facing the same problem. So it's like another image the Buddha once used was... Uh, with this problem, walking barefoot on this planet, you know, is problematic because there are a lot of thorns and sharp stones and, you know, this and that. So he said, you've got two choices. You can either cover the world in leather or you can build yourself a pair of shoes. So what are you going to do? And so this is, a, this is this about desire. We, when we have desire, we have two choices. We can try to gratify it and get a momentary relief and then have more desire and then try to gratify and then 
And then, of course, trying to gratify desire means we're always bumping up against each other because other people are trying to gratify their desires, their craving. And then, you know, there's limited things. And sometimes we have to compete and worried if, you know, what I need requires this person to behave in a certain way, like I want my partner to be this way. So then we can justify all kinds of acts of, of violence really on each other. Or we cannot be afraid of the force of craving. We can actually learn how to include it, to be interested in it actually, to say yes to it, and to really feel it, to feel that ache. I mentioned the other day in a talk how uh, on some retreats I went through this place where I was just feeling this huge, it was like a huge vortex of desire, craving. But it wasn't about anything in particular. It was just the raw force of craving. And if I tried to control it at all, it was almost unbearably painful. Like, you know, like try to think of something I actually want. It was like the heart just like ancient archetypal craving, wanting. And the only relief was to relax, to basically die to that feeling, to just let it move, to let the feeling, the force, the emotion of desiring, of craving, of wanting, that sort of existential holler, like, ah, me. There's this great uh, <laughs> cartoon from the East Bay Express. I used to live in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and back in the mid, early and mid-80s. Um, and there's this great local paper called the East Bay Express, kind of like our reader, Twin Cities Reader, or whatever it's called now. City Pages, I guess it is. And uh, they had this cartoon, Cosmic Consciousness, or something like that. Maybe some of you know of it. And there's this one scene where this guy sitting peacefully meditating, and then a thought, you know, that attractive thought arises. And it just shows him frame by frame, kind of getting into this like total, like, oh, I gotta have, gotta have, you know, until he just collapses, sort of, uh, in exhaustion, you know. And then he's sort of back, and, and then it starts all over again. <laughs> and the key is, to learn to hang out in that space. Where is the end of desire? You know, where is the end? To really look, to just let it move. And here what we're doing is reducing the sort of ordinary desires that cause so much suffering to just the force of life energy itself. That's really what it comes down to. It's just the force of life energy. It doesn't have to do with anybody or anything. But we've gotten we've gotten in this habit going down this other route that leads to hell, which is we take the force personally, meaning we think it has to do with something for somebody. Something somebody wants or doesn't want. And so it's like we're trying to constrain all of nature. Desire is really another word for nature. It's just the movement of nature. In a way, you know, in Christianity or in the biblical tradition, the Genesis story is trying to, the Adam and Eve story is trying to explain this. The sort of getting, taking the wrong path, the tree of knowledge, 
it's we could have called it the tree of possession, self-possession. You know, I want, I want. That's really what that's about. Kind of. Uh, taking things personally, wanting the information, wanting the knowledge for ourselves, wanting the control for ourselves, as opposed to the natural flow, unfolding of all things together. Maybe I'll just end the, my part of it by just sharing a little bit of um, this article by Sister Siri Panya. She's a senior nun in the Ajahn Chah Western tradition. There's a couple of wonderful monasteries in England, Amaravati in particular, but now the nuns are trying to establish a monastery here in, in the United States, probably somewhere out, out on the West Coast. And we've invited some of them to come, so hopefully we'll have some visits by some of the Western nuns at some point down the road. And this is an article she wrote a while back, Renunciation, the Highest Happiness. And she's explaining it this way. It is an attitude, a way of approaching life, which essentially boils down to giving up, seeking our fulfillment from experiences of our life and needing them to have a particular quality and giving our energy instead to understanding experience itself. When we understand this, we can start to glimpse that renunciation is not a matter of doing something or having to create something or getting rid of something or exterminating something in life. Rather, it is moving toward non-contention, a sense of rest and relaxation, not having constantly to try to manipulate and control and evade and maneuver anymore. Do you get the sense of relief that that entails? To have a non-contentious way of being in our lives, as opposed to, you know, like uh, Sylvia says, feeling like we have to struggle. Like that's what it's about, struggling. So are we willing to feel life as it is, or are we taking the bait and feeling like we have to struggle in order to get what we need, what we want? So I'll just read a little bit more. I'm skipping some. But if we see our life as an opportunity to understand Dhamma, the way things are, that is renunciation. This letting go is very freeing. Whatever comes to us and whatever comes to us is Dhamma, and there is a joy in being in contact with truth, whatever its particular flavor. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from people. If you have some thoughts from your own life, experiences that you've had, questions about the talk, yeah, Sandy. Um, you're talking about um, letting go, and I, um, had, I was uncomfortable in my life and did a little experiment. I got rid of really everything that I owned except the dump and stuff. And I um, real loud so they can hear you on the side too. Oh, did you hear her? I'm saying I was uncomfortable in my life a couple of years ago, and so I spent a year getting rid of everything and simplifying my life. And um, I, I didn't have a home, and I traveled and stayed with friends and family and explored what that was like. And um, now I've come back. My daughters are out of college. I need a place to live while they're getting settled. And 
and I'm in this apartment and I, all their stuff is there and I've acquired some new things and now I'm, I'm, um, I'm finding I have an aversion to the things that are there. There, I, I got so used to this very sparse way of living that now I go to a friend's house or my parents' house or even where I live now and I feel very uncomfortable with all of the stuff that's there. Yeah. So I have like, and, and also in conversations or with, with relationships, there's all this stuff that's like filler that, that people bring up that is uninteresting to me. And I don't, it's, it's really kind of, I find part of myself, I'm, I'm hiding. I don't yeah. want to really engage there. So it's like an aversion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not the renunciation. This is why that story of the the chitta is so important. It's not about the sense objects. It's not about the stuff you have in your life, kids, partner, material objects. It's not about being sensitive. It's about learning what arises in conjunction with that. And that's what you want to look at. Look at the fear, look at the aversion, look at the desire and the attachment for the things that you do like. And see that you don't. we don't have to relate that way. We can relate in a cool way instead of a passionate way. And it doesn't mean that we're sort of being drained of life energy. It's just the opposite. We will feel more and more alive the less attachment there is to the objects, to the experiences that we're having. We're more nimble and more creative in how we are in the world when there's less attachment identification. So sometimes the right kind of practice is really to do what you, you talked about, Sandy, going away, simplifying your life, fewer duties and responsibilities, when, that's, when you have that opportunity and really explore that. But then when life, for whatever reason, turns in another direction, you don't want to practice being averse to it. You want to say yes to it. So all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I'm pregnant, you know? And all of a sudden your life has changed. Or, you know, you get, uh, your parent gets sick and you're the right person to take care of your parent. And there you are. Your life is sort of, you had all this freedom, and now you're sort of tied down in a, in a very profound way. And the, the, uh, the, the real spiritual practice is to say yes to whatever sort of shows up on our doorstep and to see that the problem isn't the particular situation, the problem is what arises in conjunction, the hatred, the fear, the expectations, you know, this is not fit the view that I had. But maybe we don't need to have that view, maybe we can have another view, another way of sort of relating skillfully to the situation. And so this would be a great practice, like when the tendency of suffocating and all that stuff comes up, you know, see, look at that feeling of suffocating or being uh, weighed down by all the stuff in your life now relative to the way it was, and see if you could have a different attitude about it. It doesn't mean that you don't say what you need to say to your daughters, you don't ask them, you know, negotiate some kind of appropriate balance. So it's not saying that you don't do that. But you don't want to do that out of fear. You want to do that with some clarity, you know, some equanimity. That's the best place to have that conversation. If you're angry out of all that stuff and you try to talk to them, it probably won't work so well. But if you have some kind of spaciousness and then try to help them to understand that they might be happier with less stuff.
or they may be happier because you're happier. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, Bill. And then let's have. Maybe a little louder, Bill. Oh, so there's a guy in my daughter's swim class who's from India. And uh, as I explained my life story, he said, you should try meditation. And he mentioned his place. And so I came a little bit shy because I was thinking, well, maybe I'm going to a cult in a bunch of But I came, and, and uh, that was kind of like the, the thing that really got me. It was the clean and craving. I was, I, was, I was suffering at work, and I was like, you know, usually you kind of radiate happiness and joy, and it makes all your coworkers. So I work in kind of a mashing that, you know, it makes everybody else happy and everybody else kind of, you know, is uplifted. But when I'm like selfish and pulled inward, I'm actually sucking energy out of people. You know, everybody, everybody's selfish. Yeah. So I found that after coming here and, you know, started yoga and trying to do some other healthy choices in my life, I've now started to like turn away from the thing that was clean, creative, and I'm slowly opening up. And I'm talking to people that I never talked to at work, and I'm finding that I'm meeting more people and I'm meeting more joy that way. But it's been such a paradigm shift for me to you know, do this. It's, it's, it's work. And I'm always constantly like, stress and balance. Like, my, yeah. My crazy thinking because I'll like, get back on that axle before I just start spinning in circles and go fast. Yeah. And the meditation I'm finding, coming here and doing other stuff is Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And, and your point that it's kind of an ongoing thing is really important because we can have the insight and let go of the struggling, but that doesn't mean we won't pick it up in the next moment. So we have to be willing like, to be in it for the long haul, like to let it go and to let it go and to let it go. It's really a moment-to-moment -moment practice, not just a one-time practice. Um, so I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Other thoughts? Yes. Um, okay, so I want to see if I get it. Sort of doing the, I don't know, the Deepa Ma style of mindfulness where you're going through your day and sort of noting as things go. So if I understand what you're saying about pronunciation, so let's say I'm, I'm having pain somewhere, and of course, right, like many people have an aversion to pain. And so I, as I would sort of note, okay, let's say my leg hurts. And then I would note, okay, I'm also feeling aversion. I would just sort of separate them and sort of, okay, now I'm just interested in the pain, but I'm not letting it become something bigger. And I'm interested in this sensation of aversion, but I'm not becoming attached to it and letting it get bigger. Well, Mike, you're not trying to control it. That's the that's the important thing. So the the pain is as an experience. It's just that sensation, hardness, throbbing, aching, whatever it is. But the not liking of it is something else. That's something that's happening in the mind. And that we can watch. And if we can see that aversion for what it is, just a movement in the mind, it, there's a lot of freedom. If we take it personally, then there, there's a kind of a dance that gets set up between the unpleasant sensations and the unpleasant thought. And they keep triggering each other. If we identify with the aversion in the mind, that causes the body basically to tighten. And then the tightened tighten body 
causes the next wave of thought. Oh yeah, I don't like this, you know? And then that thought triggers the tension in the body. And it just builds and we have suffering. So we feel the pain, we notice the thought, the aversion, and we let, if it's possible, we let the aversion, the not liking of it, we be front and center. If we have enough space in the mind, we try to let that be front and center. Oh, not liking is like this. And this is where noting can come in. We actually name it. Oh, not liking is like this. And then it's like a tracing back. We're going from the not liking of this pain to just that, what is that without the story of this pain, without the, like what's that movement in the mind itself? We're taking a look at that. Just the movement of the mind, the movement of the moment really. Because ultimately what it comes down to is life is like a free fall. And because of the sense of self who wants to be in control, there's this sort of existential habit of resisting the free fall. Life is just happening. It's just stuff happening. Unfolding naturally, lawfully, endlessly happening. There's no stopping, there's no resting places. It's an, a, a ceaseless flow. But part of that ceaseless flow is this almost ceaseless activity of freezing up. You know, and that's just the habit of selfing and controlling and suffering. And so when we, whatever we dig into, whatever we open up to, what we're learning to do is see things as they actually are, which is the movement itself, is anicca, change or impermanence. We're noticing the flow, whether, we're, we, whether our gateway is aversion, looking at the aversion in the mind or craving or whatever. So we want to just come right back to things as they are. So in the end, we're just looking at Dhamma, the way it is, which is movement. But to get there, we start with pain, and then we look at the mind relating to the pain, the not liking of it, and then we relax. We don't take that personally. We just see it for what it is, and we start to notice its ephemeral qualities, its movement qualities, its insubstantial quality. How can it be a thing if it's flow? If something's a process, it's never a thing because it's always changing. And that's what we discover wherever we look. Yeah. So the key is just to do it. You know, we have to keep practicing. It's not, uh, it's an insight that evolves slowly, you know, but we have to be willing to bring that kind of mindfulness. A moment of mindfulness is a moment of not struggling because if we're struggling, then we're not mindful. If we're trying to control or if we have an agenda then it's not really mindfulness. It's like trying to get something in a subtle way. Other thoughts people have? Questions? <coughs> yeah, Ann. I struggled with this for a really long time. Ajahn Chandra was something that was very useful to me. He talked about the usefulness of an anchoring goal because I found the idea of life's just a free fall. Mm -hmm. Nothing in life. It isn't nothing. It is perpetual. 
perpetually noticing as things are unfolding what's unfolding. And I still, I appreciated what you said about, you know, it's like a window that opens and closes and opens and closes. It's like I get it for 30 seconds and then it goes away. Um, I work a lot with habit and motivation. And so in the whole how you organize your life and how you choose to do and be and contribute, it's still really hard for me to figure out how that works for but remember, we're not asking ourselves to see everything as a free flow. We're just asking, like you said, and to see things as they are. You know, like, uh, so remember, we're not putting any expectation to the practice. We're simply trying to show up, you know, so when we have pain, we know we have pain. When we have aversion to the pain, we know we have aversion to the pain. And, and we're bringing this kind of authentic interest to the experience of pain, to the experience of aversion. All I'm suggesting is that one of the things you'll start to notice, no matter what you look at, is that it's changing, that it's a flow. Hmm? That's shocking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's shocking, and it's the way it's always been. So it may feel like a profound discovery, but it's not new. It's always been this way, and we're doing just fine, I mean, relatively speaking. So it's like people feel like all of a sudden I'm going to fall through the world because there's nothing really here. But the thing is, it's always been this way. So we don't need to worry about it being this way because life is already the way that it is. Understanding how it is won't make it worse than it is. It will make it better because now all of a sudden the way that we interact will be based on kind of a, a clear understanding of the way things are. Philosophically, it's very disturbing, but only philosophically. <laughs> but as an actual practice, it's not disturbing at all. It's liberating. I mean, as Joseph Goldstein always says, the only thing we're actually giving, letting go of is suffering. You know, that's all we're letting go of. We're just letting go of greed, anger, and delusion. That's the definition of Nibbana. Nibbana is, the word Nibbana means cessation. It's the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. Or selfing, you know, the self-centeredness in the mind. When that falls away, there's a moment of freedom or liberation. And then when it comes back in, there's a moment of being an ordinary human being, an ordinary suffering human being, you know. And then in another moment, when that identification or that attachment has dropped, ceased, then there's a moment of real freedom. The freedom of not clinging, of not grasping, of not struggling with the conditions of the moment. It's available. Mm -hmm. And then we'll end with this still. Oh, Lewis. <laughs> As I was listening to you, it kept reminding me of the times I have been in places where people were either in the process of giving birth or in the process of dying. Yeah. And the sensations that the people are going through, uh, a lot of times you could say, well, it's painful, but there's a way of 
fold that's unfolded and something's free. Yeah. Yeah. And they're they're really good uh, metaphors for the practice, take, uh, giving birth and dying, and because if we if we resist it, it's so clearly a terrible a terribly suffering experience when it's resisted. And uh, I'm not saying that it's not going to be painful, but I think we can open up to the to the place where. You know, if we're not taking the process personally, there can be a lot of freedom in it, just sort of in letting go. Now, instead of waiting until we die to practice, you know, we can use the exhalation as a metaphor for death, like really trusting the exhalation. Don't anticipate the in-breath. Really let the heart-mind completely exhale. Just let that natural process happen. And then when the in-breath begins on its own. Let it be like this amazing thing. Out of nowhere comes the in-breath, this bursting forth of an inhalation. And this is true, too, like the morning when you wake up. It's like a bursting forth. There's a new day arising. And when we go to bed at night, we just let go of the past. The day's over. It's really done. And to kind of work with the metaphors um, of birth and death really brings us more and more in line with the basic fabric of our experience or our lives. Let's end it here so that we can end on time. Just take a few seconds to sit silently together. It's always nice to appreciate being here together. And remembering our deepest aspiration to live in a way that alleviates the suffering in our hearts and contributes to the release of suffering for all beings without exception. This is a beautiful aspiration. And thankfully, we don't need to figure out how it's all going to happen. But just to have the aspiration to live in a way that leads to peace for all beings, including ourselves. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. There's a yoga.